The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. My name is Paul. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm honored and, uh, and honestly grateful for the opportunity to, to be one of the teaching pastors here as well. So today, uh, I'm going to be continuing our series. In, we, we started it last week. We're calling it Deeper, and we're asking that question, how do people grow? And as we engage in this, this study, it's just eight weeks long, today's week two, uh, it's really, a, it's a long look at what is the substance of discipleship. What is it that God calls us to as disciples of his son Jesus? And so it, it, there are eight questions that we're seeking to answer each week, and the first two are going to be review. Uh, we covered them last week, we're going to cover them for the next seven weeks, but, but it's good for us to be on the same page each week. The first question that we're going to ask today is, what is a disciple? And we've added language to that here at our church. We, we've added this language. Uh, a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. You'll see this on our banners, on our website, on our programs. This is a deeply held conviction. We believe that this is the, the kind of the, a 30,000-foot view definition of what a disciple is. And then this last week, we added language to what is discipleship. If discipleship is this process of becoming and growing as a disciple, we wanted to add some clear language to what is discipleship. And here's the language we added last week. If you didn't have a chance to take notes, I encourage you to write it down this week. In discipleship, we walk with Jesus as the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live and love as Jesus did to the glory of God. I'll read that again. This is, in speaking of discipleship, we say that in discipleship, we walk with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus, so that we can live in love as Jesus did to the glory of God. Now this is a lifelong journey. Anybody who's been in the church for any length of time, you you recognize that this is a nonstop, ever uh, growing and evolving, two steps forward, one step back journey of continually surrendering all of we are over to God as he shapes us and molds us and forms us more and more into the image of his son. And this is the reason for this series that we're doing called Deeper. We believe that right now what the world needs is a church filled with disciples of Jesus Christ who look like Jesus Christ, who love like Jesus Christ, who lead like Jesus Christ, who are being shaped and formed more and more each and every day into the image of Jesus, that we can be his representatives to the world around us. Amen? And so last week we talked about God-glorifying stewardship. This week we're going to talk about authentic relationships marked by love. And in the six following weeks we're going to talk about gospel purity and mature doctrine, missional lifestyle, authentic worship marked by relationships, emotional health, godly character, and a willing submission to God. And so what we're looking in the scriptures as we're pulling out these truths is we're going to the gospels. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the Gospels that we have these portraits of Jesus, of his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. It's in the Gospels that we can, we can observe the perfect life of Jesus as our ultimate example of what a disciple is to look like. But it's also in the Gospels where we see Jesus equipping his disciples to be his representatives upon his ascension and his departure. And so our understanding of what it is to be a disciple, how discipleship looks, is rooted in the gospel accounts. That brings us up to Matthew today. I encourage you to brought a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be in a very well-known section of scripture. It's called the great commandment or the greatest commandment. We're going to be in verse 34 through 40. And we're going to, today, through this text, we're going to take a deeper look at what it means for disciples of Jesus to pursue authentic relationships marked by love. Matthew 22, we're going to read verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now this conversation is taking place in the final few days before the crucifixion of Jesus. 
before his arrest. And these questions that we see in Matthew 22, it's like the different political and religious uh, uh, organizations or the groups of powerful uh, politicians and religionists are uh, questioning Jesus and we had the Herodians ask him about taxes and you had the the Sadducees ask him about the resurrection of the dead and now the Pharisees are trying their hand to test Jesus and they ask him about the greatest commandment. Now this was the debate of the day. This was the debate that, that, that caused a lot of these divisions within Judaism was how people interpreted the law and what they thought of the law and what was the greatest commandment and what wasn't the greatest commandment. And so they're asking Jesus this question and rather than get involved in the minutia of the religious debate of the day, Jesus doesn't play that game. He doesn't answer them with a list of commandments or provide them with a checklist of to-dos. Rather than descend into their theological squabble, he answers their question with a call to loving relationships. He tells them, love God primarily and love others secondarily. They go together. He tells them that the greatest commandment is to, is to engage in loving relationship with God and therefore engage in loving relationship with, with one another, with those around you. As we look at this text this last week, as we studied this passage as a group, we, we try to discern what is the, the intent of Jesus. Like if you could boil down all of this to just like the, the intent that we're supposed to walk away from the great commandment with, what are we supposed to walk away with when it comes to this commandment? And we boiled it down to, to simply this. Jesus is... He's telling his disciples then, and he's telling us today, to love God and love others, they go together in that order. Or to love God, or to love others, they go together in that order. And this is what informs how we think about authentic relationships marked by love as a church. We believe here at Heritage that authentic relationships marked by love is an essential dimension of discipleship. It's one of the eight markers. We, we cannot grow as disciples in isolation. We need one another, and we need one another to be in rela- authentic relationship with one another. We're able to love one another. We, we, when we say the phrase authentic relationships, we're simply referring to relationships that are honest and vulnerable and transparent and real. No, no religious masks, no fake uh, spirituality, like authentic knowing of one another and knowing one another. That's what we desire to see in the body of Christ. When we say the phrase marked by love, we mean that these relationships should contain the biblical qualities of love expressed or lived out in actions and attitudes of love toward one another. And this leads us to our third question. This is no longer review. This is all new information now. What are authentic relationships marked by love? And here's the definition. Very simple. It'll be on the screen so you can follow along. Here's our scaled-down answer to this question of what are authentic relationships. And we say this. Authentic relationships are honest, vulnerable, and transparent, and are marked with the biblical virtue of love evidenced by our actions and attitudes towards one another. Authentic relationships are honest, vulnerable, and transparent and are marked by the biblical virtue of love evidenced by our actions and attitudes towards one another. So let's take an honest look at how we can live this out in our lives, in our families, in our broader community. Let's take a deeper look at what relationships ought to look like. Would you pray with me? But God, I, I recognize that you have created us to be relational beings. God, that we are not meant to, to live in isolation or in silos, God, you have made us to, to live in relationship with one another. You said to Adam before the fall in the Garden of Eden, it is not good for man to be alone. We are created to be relational. And so, God, as we look at the great commandment, as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, as we talk about our own lives, God, would you, by your Spirit, would you, would you grow us? Would you, would you open up things that we need to be open up to, God? Would you bring conviction where we need to have conviction and clarity where we need to have clarity? Ultimately, God, our desire is, as a church, that we would be interdependent on one another, God. That we would gather and you'd be there with us and there would be a deep knowing of one another and intimacy and transparency and authenticity in our relationships for your glory. And so, God, as we unpack this virtue, as we unpack this, this marker of discipleship, God, would you, would you be with us? Give us understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Thursday, I started uh, a men's study, Thursday mornings at the Hub. 
Uh, we're just kind of going through the preaching text a couple weeks out. And, and so we're, reading, we're sitting in the conference room. Well, I'm with six or seven guys. And my daughter, uh, she's going to bring her, her son, my grandson, to preschool. And she also has our exchange student with her. And so she, she comes into the church and they happen to walk in right into my, my Bible study. And of course, my grandson's like a wrecking ball. Hey, everybody! Everyone pay attention to me, I'm two. And so he comes in. And we all, he's cute, he's saying hi to everybody because he, he never met a stranger. And then, and then uh, she, she takes him into the bathroom to kind of comb his hair so he'd look pretty for school. And when he comes back into the room, there's all these grown men sitting there. And I look at him and I say, hey, Wilson, say hi. And he says, hi, friends. As clear as that. And I thought, man, that is the truest thing ever. He truly means that when he says it. He is this innocent little two-year-old who, who never met a stranger. And he's just filled with this love. It's just... I, I, being around him is so, I don't need a television or a book or entertainment. He is all that I need. And I sit with Wilson and he, now he's at this place where he goes through like the Rolodex of his mind. He's like, okay. He calls himself Wilson. He's like an athlete. He refers to himself in the third person. And he's like, Wilson loves mama. Wilson loves Nana. Wilson loves Pop Pop. Wilson loves Ali. Wilson loves Eli. And then our exchange student, he say, Wilson loves Miss Ping Ping. He says, and, he just, and it's so true. He just got, and I just watched this little innocent mind, this little innocent, innocent soul, and there's just copious amounts of, of love that just boil and bubble out of this young man. He's the most loving, friendly, outgoing little dude. He, he won't leave our exchange student alone. He's always going, I'm like, dude, leave her alone. She doesn't need more kisses. Just get away uh, from her. It's not appropriate. Uh, so, but as I thought about it this week, uh, I thought, like, why? Why does that little guy love so freely? And it dawned on me that, that Wilson freely loves others. Wilson freely gives away his love because all he's ever known is love. It's all he's ever known. He's two years and two months old, and, and he's got five people around him in our home that love him, like, with our whole beings. All he's ever experienced is love and relationship and comforting. And I think about the fact that all day long he receives unconditional love from all of us in our home. And in a little Wilson's mind, he cannot fathom a world where he wouldn't be continually and freely loved. Because that's all he's ever known. And so therefore, when he sees strangers, they're not strangers. He can love them. And they're his friends. Because he's got this deep, deep, deep well from which he draws. So he's able to freely love all those around him. Doesn't the world just try to suck that out of us? The world does everything in its power to steal that from us. Betrayal and brokenness and abuse and loss and sin. I'm absolutely convinced that if we knew how deeply loved we were in Christ, just like Wilson, we would never meet a stranger and we would give love away every time we turned a corner. I'm convinced of it. Without regard. I was thinking of the, the prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed over the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. In part, here's what he prays for his church. And I think what a beautiful prayer for our church. He says, I pray that you, church, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of of all the fullness of God. Can you imagine what it would look like for you as an individual, for us as a church, to be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God's love? Can you imagine the way we would freely love the world around us, freely engage in authentic relationships marked by love? I'm convinced that the greatest human need is love. As I reflected back on youth ministry, I did youth ministry for like 10 years, and, and in youth ministry, you see all these just kids that are lost, come from broken homes, and difficult situations and you see them making foolish decisions and it breaks your heart because you recognize as an adult looking at a teenager you're like oh you're just looking for love in all the wrong places in all the wrong places oh if we could just offer the love to those around us that they so deeply desire a couple months ago, back in February, we did a sermon series on marriage, love, and family. And in that, we, we talked about the different kinds of love that we see in the Greek language and stuff. But, but we ultimately boiled down, if you remember, if you were here last February, we talked about two kinds of loves. If you could take love and divide it into two camps, the way we, we tend to think of love, it would be love of complacency and love of benevolence. Maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. Love of complacency is a love that is rooted in the value of the thing being loved. It is to love something or someone because that thing or someone is lovely. 
It, it is a self-serving love because this love is based on what this person or this object does for me. It's transactional. That's a love of complacency. That's not the love that Jesus is talking about in the great commandment. The other kind of love is a love of benevolence. And this is a love that is rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. It is to love even when the object may not be lovely. It is a a self-sacrificing love. It's based on what given love can do for the other. So I love even when the thing I'm loving is not lovable. It's not transactional, but it's transformational. And so as we engage in this discussion about relationships that are authentic, that are marked by love, we we have to come to this reality that, that God's love for you and for me is a love of benevolence. It's not based on your lovability or my lovability. His love for you and his love for me is rooted in his essence. It's rooted in his character. His love for you, his love for me is not dependent on our performance, but dependent on who he is. His love for you and for me is on display through his son, Jesus. He is, this is a self-sacrificing love. And once it's received, it changes a person forever. And so as we, as we engage this discussion about, about loving others and marking that relationship with authenticity, what enables you and me to experience authentic relationships marked by love is first being recipients of his divine love. This is the whole, this is the whole point of the order of the great commandment. So this takes us to our second, our second, or our fourth question, rather. And so as we've been saying all along, we want to look at Jesus as our model, and we want to look to what he taught. So the fourth question is, how did Jesus model for us this, this, this marker, authentic relationships marked by love? Uh, and spoiler alert, he, he modeled it perfectly because he's Jesus. And, and that's how I'm going to answer this question. And by the way, for the next six weeks, when we ask this question, how did Jesus model this certain marker of a disciple? We're going to say every single week that he modeled it perfectly. Let me give you an argument for why I believe that Jesus modeled authentic relationships marked by love perfectly. It, it begins with his relationship with the Father. At his baptism in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, 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 in his baptism, the Father says from heaven, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am, I am pleased. So there was a love of the Father to the Son. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus intentionally withdrawing to quiet places in the morning or at night to the mountains to solitude that he could meet with the Father, commune with the Father, foster intimacy with the Father. We see this in, in Jesus. And we see it in relationship with his own family. Jesus, he came to fulfill the law, so he perfectly honored his mother and father. We see this most distinctly at the very end of his life. If you go to John's Gospel, chapter 20, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he assures that Mary is covered, his mother Mary is covered by John the Apostle. And and one of the last things he does before he breathes out his dying breath is to assure that his mother is cared for in his death. And, And we see it in his relationship with his friends. I mean, Jesus, he was limited because, he, because of the incarnation. He couldn't be friends with everybody, so he chose 12. And then of those 12, he had three. And in those relationships, we see incredible intimacy and intentionality on Jesus' part. In John 15, Jesus was praying, and he said, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. He said this to his disciples. And of course, we see Jesus loving the multitudes. When he fed the 5,000, it says he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We see him stopping his busy, his busy journeys to, to heal the woman with the issue of blood, to, to help people who are afflicted, to raise the daughter of Nain. We see him stopping and loving the multitudes. And we even see Jesus loving his enemies. I mean, Judas betrayed him. On the night that Judas betrayed him, Jesus washed his feet and shared a meal with him. And as Jesus hung on a cross and as he was dying and his executioners were hurling insults at him, what did Jesus say to them? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So in his relationship with humankind, Jesus modeled a love of benevolence, rooted in the character of the one loving. This is what Jesus models. It's the ultimate picture of love. And even after his resurrection, we see Jesus continuing to model authentic relationship marked by love. This is what we have in our huddle group curriculum. It says, Jesus continued to love well after the resurrection by restoring friendships. His disciples abandoned him, and Jesus draws near to them after the resurrection to restore them back to right standing. He continues to extend the hand of friendship and family to all who believe through the gospel. He invites them to deep and intimate fellowship through the indwelling of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus models for us what it looks like to have authentic relationships that are marked by love. And the ultimate picture of the love of Jesus was his willingness to go to the cross. And so to the question, how did Jesus model Perfect, uh, authentic relationships marked by love? Well, he modeled them perfectly, which takes us to the fifth question. What did Jesus teach concerning authentic relationships marked by love? 
And that's why we're looking at the great commandment today. And as we take a look at the great commandment, we need to even go behind the great commandment to, to the, the deeper theology behind love biblically. Here's how I answer the, the, what did Jesus teach concerning authentic relationships marked by love? If we distill down the great commandment, we, Jesus teaches that, that love is lived out in relationship and we are to love God and love others within the context of relationship. Again, he said to the first human, it is not good that man should be alone. So in part, this great commandment is teaching the disciples of Jesus what those relationships with others ought to look like. And so Jesus says to the answer, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this phrase in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. The law and prophets here is referencing the entire Old Testament. Jesus is saying that the entire Old Testament can be summed up in four words. Love God and love others. In Hebrew, there's about 420,000 words in the Old Testament. Our English translations hover around 750,000 words. And of all those words, the, 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 the great rabbis, scholars, distilled that down to 613 commandments. And then in the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, we scales it down to ten commandments. And now here's Jesus looking back at all of Revelation, and he's saying, all that my desire for my people is to do this. You can live out all of the intention of God, all the implication of the Old Testament, all the commandments can be lived out in these two things. Love God, and love others. Our whole group curriculum continues. It says Jesus sums up the point of all 613 commandments in the, New in the Old Testament under two categories. Our relationships with God and our relationships with the people around us. It reads, it says, if Jesus distills God's commands down to our relationships, well then a major marker of our lives as disciples is the health of these relationships. So in the context of relationships, we are made and commanded to love God and love others. And in the words here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6 and he's quoting Leviticus 19, these two Old Testament passages as he's sharing the great commandment. And these are well-known Old Testament passages. And, and if you look at the, the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in and, and the word used for love in these passages, it's the Hebrew word ahave. And it means primarily to act. It, it is an act of mind and of will. It, it's the determined care for the welfare of someone. This word for love, it's the kind of love that is marked by dedication and commitment of choice. It's an intentional act of love. One scholar puts it this way. He says, this Hebrew word speaks of a love that recognizes and chooses to follow that which is righteous, noble, and true, regardless of what one's feelings in the matter may be. This Hebrew word for love that Jesus is quoting in the New Testament, it is not a sentimental love but an intentional, self-giving love. It's a love that puts self-interest aside for the sake of the one being loved. It's a love that requires a conscious choice to step out of oneself for the benefit of another. Now, the New Testament's written in Greek, so the Greek equivalent here is the word agapao. It's where we get the word agape. And this is an intelligent, purposeful, and committed love that's an act of the will. Again, the word for love here is the same. It's, it's, this, it's not a sentimental word, it's not about the stirring up of affections. Uh, it, it is an intentional act of self-giving love. It's a love that puts the self-interest of one aside for the sake of the one being loved. It's a love that requires a conscious choice. And as we think about this picture of love that is being used in the great commandment, can you think of an act of intentional self-giving love that might give shape to this? A living metaphor that might help us understand what this sort of love might be. Can you think of an act of love that puts self-interest aside for the sake of the ones being loved. Isn't that exactly what we see displayed on the cross of Christ? In an incredible act of intentionality, Jesus became flesh. He entered the humanity and he, and he drew near to people. In, in an incredible act of self-sacrifice, Jesus went to the cross. He, he, though he knew sin not, though he was sinless, Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's wrath that belonged to sinners. He did so putting his self-interest aside so that others like you and me would be forgiven and saved. This self-giving love of Jesus is on display in the gospel, and it's the standard for how we are to live out love in the context of relationships. But, where does this love come from? When we hear the word love, we talk about the word love, it's debated of what it means, our, our society uses it at nauseam in all these different ways, it's got just different self-designations for how to think about love, but if we think about it biblically, where does love originate? I love 
the way John, in his letter, 1 John, very succinctly talks about where this love comes from and what it means in our lives. Listen to how John puts us in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. He's writing to believers, and he's saying to you and me today as well, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins and atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the impetus we have to love one another is rooted in the love we receive through Christ. And so what does it mean? In verse 8, where, where John says that God is love, that's a phrase we, we've come to know. It's throughout the scriptures. What does it mean that God is love? And that, the answer to that question is a deeply theological answer. I'm grateful for Jared Wilson, who wrote a, an essay called No Trinity, No Love, that I was able to spend some time in this weekend. And I'm just going to paraphrase, because his, his thinking helped to sharpen my thinking when we think about the, the Trinity and love. L- listen to this. Love isn't God, but, but God is love. So what does it mean for God to be love? Well, it does not mean that God is simply loving. Judaism and Mormonism and Islam say that their God is a loving God. But when Christians teach that God himself is love, they're saying that real love itself has its origin and its essence in God. And this cannot be true unless God is Trinity. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity matters so much. What is the Trinity? Well, it's the doctrine that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Said another way, the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one in essence and three in person. In the doctrine of the Trinity, there are three vitally important truths that are expressed. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, with that truth of the Trinity in mind, let's think about love. And Wilson makes this argument, and I agree. A solitary God cannot be love. He may learn to love, he may yearn for love, but he cannot himself be love since love requires an object. Real love requires relationship. And in the doctrine of the Trinity, we finally see how love is part of the fabric of creation. Love is essential to the eternal need nothing to crave. And so, if God is eternally existing, from eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in community. From eternity past, since before the beginning of time, they've always been in relationship. They have loved one another. And that loving relationship is bound up in the very nature of God himself. And so the Trinity isn't some weird doctrine that was made up, some weird aberration that Christians have kind of stupidly clung to. No, it's the answer to the deepest longing of the human heart. The Trinity answers history's oldest desire. And it even clarifies the question. It makes us go deeper than sentimental notions and ethereal feelings and elusive emotions. Because we've been looking for love. From the time we have a sentient thought, we begin looking for love. And often we look for love in all the wrong places. It's a mad quest. I bet you if we were to sit down and talk about the pursuits in your life, the decisions you've made, my guess is there have been some wrong turns and some distractions and some detours in your life that were made in an ill-gotten attempt to find love in the wrong space or in the wrong place. We're all on a quest for love. We search. We find moments where we think maybe we've found it apart from God, but it's, it's heaven, it's nothing, it's there one minute, it's gone the next, it's vanity. Because the reality is we were made for the realest love there is. What is the realest love there is? Didn't Jesus tell us what the realest love is when he said there's no greater love than this? Then when one man lays down his life for his friends, that's the realest love. We were made for that love. Now, imagine that the one who is love himself sacrificed himself. Imagine that the eternal loving fellowship of the divine community, as Wilson puts it, imagine that the eternal loving fellowship of the divine community sent out one of their own to die not just for their friends, but for their enemies. Why would the Trinity do this? Well, to make enemies friends. That's why. 
And this is precisely what God has done in his son Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on flesh and comes to die that he who is true love might show true love and give true love to transform by true love that we might finally know true love and know what it means to extend true love toward God and others. So the very understanding, the fundamental understanding of what it means to love is rooted in the essence of God himself. So we have to do that back work before we start talking about what it means on a practical level for us to love. Because we'll just, otherwise, we'll just slip into do-it-yourself mode. We'll, we'll slip into checklists and to-do lists. And, and we won't have this understanding of the deep things of love that we have in God. This is a vertical love relationship with God. And as this relationship with God is lived out in our lives, then and only then do we have the capacity to live love in our horizontal relationships. And so this leads us to the sixth question. Where are you doing? Where are you? How are you doing concerning authentic relationships marked by love? How are you doing? How am I doing personally? How are we as a church doing at, at living authentic relationships marked by love? If you look at our survey results, we're doing okay. This is the second highest area of, of uh, uh, second highest ranking in, in the markers for our church. The statement we struggled with the most as a church when it came to authentic relationships marked by love is, is that we, we struggled with this statement. My love for others is real and tangible. It's an onward, outward action and not just an inward attitude. So we struggle to know what it looks like on a practical level to love those around us. But we feel like we deeply love, which is good. And in our lives, in your life, in my life, we have relationships with all kinds of people. We have family that's intimate. We have extended family, coworkers, friends, neighbors, teammates, people in the community. But if we think about it for the sake of our argument today, that really we could distill down all of our relationships to two categories. If you're someone who's a follower of Jesus, and if you're in Christ, you have relationships with either those who know Jesus or those who don't. You have relationships either with other believers or with those who aren't believers. And so the question is, what does relationship look like with our brothers and sisters in Christ? What does the scriptures say? How does it inform how our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ ought to look? I mean, there's a million books written about this. If you, just, if you just peruse the, the epistles in the New Testament, they, we, they're loaded with practical insight into what love relationship looks like between brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to be devoted to one another. We're to honor one another. We are to live in harmony with one another, to accept one another. We're to serve one another in love. We're to be kind and compassionate with one another. We're to admonish one another in love. We're to encourage one another, spur one another on towards Acts of love and good deeds, we're to offer hospitality, we're to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed, we're to love one another. The word the Bible uses to, to talk about the relationship between believers is the word that's often translated fellowship. No doubt if you've been in the church for, for, a, for a season or two, you've heard the word koinonia, the Greek word that is often translated fellowship. It's a well-written about, well-talked about word. Koinonia is being in agreement with one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's being united in purpose and serving alongside each other. Our koinonia with one another is based upon our common koinonia with Christ. And so living out our authentic relationships marked by love is to look this way according to the New Testament. But what about our relationship with unbelievers? We talked about this a lot this week. Does the command to be an authentic relationship marked by love, does it, does it apply to our relationships with, with those who aren't in Christ? And we say yes. It's going to look different. If I'm in Christ and, and, and the primary relationship in my life is my relationship with Jesus and this person whom I'm in relationship with doesn't hold that same conviction, of course that's going to create a, a challenge in our relationship that we still need to love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about his relationship with the unbelieving world. I think the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he gives us a picture for what authentic relationships marked by love looks like with an unbelieving world and with our unbelieving friends. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. He said, for, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. He lives a life of service and sacrifice for the sake of his unbelieving friends. He says to the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. I do this that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. But I do this 
that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And so at the end of the day, it comes down to this. As men and women who are in relationship with God, who have been fully and perfectly and infinitely loved by Jesus, we, we don this posture of one who has been loved fully, which then allows us to put our self-interest on the back burner and don the posture of servant when we come to others. And so the question then becomes, as we think about how we're doing, is, is how, would you, how would you rate yourself if you're honest? If we did a continuum again this week like we did last week on, on a scale of one to five, how are you doing in, in, in living out authentic relationships marked by love? Be honest with yourself. If one is failing and five is flourishing, where would you put yourself on that continuum today as you assess Let's say that one is, uh, you're characterized by hiding yourself from others. You live in relational isolation. No one really knows you. Uh, you don't really know anyone very deeply. You, you struggle to see how love is, a, is, a, is an outflow of a healthy spiritual life. And that's you. You're, you're, you're hidden. If that's you, you're a one. What about two? Well, those who are in, in group two, I would say they maintain relationships of proximity. Those relationships you kind of have to maintain because of the proximity of life. Spouses intimate family members. You know those people who are in close proximity. You, you at times don the attributes of love because you know you're supposed to. You extend yourself to those key people, to, to very, very few. You recognize even that you're supposed to love, but it feels like an external thing for you. You, you seek to protect those that are close to you because you're trying to find tangible ways to live out love, but you're not sure what that really looks like. That's you. You're, you're maintaining those relationships of proximity. Maybe you're three. And in three, you're, you're someone who's learning to love the lovable. Those that are easy to love, you're able to love. You, you genuinely love them and, 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 and you care about them. You, you struggle maybe at times with intentionality in, in maintaining those relationships, but you love freely when it's easy to love, but you struggle to love when it's not so easy. And if you're honest with yourself, sometimes you withhold your love because you're frustrated and angry. You're asking God to change you. You recognize that, that to love others is a byproduct of the spiritual life. It's a byproduct of spiritual health. You're learning humility. You're, you're providing for the needs of others. You're honoring those who honor you. You're demonstrating vulnerability with, with a trusted few. If that's you, you're in three. And maybe you're in four. In four, you are learning to love the unlovable, the difficult people in your life. You're actively working on being intentional in your relationships, in all your relationships. You're beginning to learn what it means to, to love your enemies, which is crazy. You don't hold grudges. You're extending authentic forgiveness even to those people who have inflicted the deepest wounds in your life. You're loving others as a byproduct of a rich spiritual life. You're not having to put on love as, a, as an external dawning, but it's actually an outflow of spiritual vitality. You, you seek the good of others, even if they're difficult. You seek and speak the truth and love even when it's difficult. And you're confidently vulnerable in front of other people. If that's you, you're four. And if you're five, you are willingly dying for your enemy. Because that's Jesus. So where are you? On a scale of one to five, are you, are you hiding yourself from others? Are you maintaining uh, relationships of proximity? Are you able to love the lovely? Are you, are you learning to love the unlovely? And since you're all here listening to me speak, I don't think you've lived out five just yet dying for your enemy. So where would, you, where would you put yourself today? I'm not doing that to shame anybody. It's not what we're here for. Just want us to think critically about where, we, where we're at as disciples. And how, because here's, here's, this takes us to question seven. How can you and me, how can we grow in this area? This is the whole point of this series. We want to grow deeper. We want to grow. If I'm a one, I'm a one. So be it. Let's, let's move that. Let's, 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 let's come to the Lord and ask God to do a mighty work in our lives to move us. If I'm a two, I'm a two, a three, a three, a four, a four. Let's, loo, let's look towards growth. And, and again, how, how can you and I grow in authentic relationships marked by love? Listen, it, it, it doesn't start with a checklist. It doesn't start with us doing a bunch of stuff right off the bat. It starts with a posture. We said the same thing last week. We have to don this posture. We have to recognize that your need and my need to be loved and accepted has been fulfilled in the gospel. So be loved. Receive that love. If you want to have authentic relationships with others that are marked by love, it begins with your love relationship with God. Because if, if you are not entering relationship as one who is fully loved, you're entering relationship with a, an agenda. 
You're entering a relationship with needs that you're asking the other person to meet in you before you're able to that, that's That's the antithetical to this picture of self-giving love we're called to. So until I'm able to drink deeply and experience the, the fullness and, and be completed in the love of God through his son Jesus, until my need to be loved is fully and perfectly satisfied in him, it's going to hinder my ability to love others. Because I'm going to enter a relationship with an agenda. I'm, I'm in relationship with you because I need you to do something for me. And that's the opposite of love. That's the opposite of healthy relationship. And so, so we need to learn to meet with him. Meet with him regularly. Meet with him in solitude. Meet with him in intimate community. Meet with him corporately. Hear from the, from the Lord. Spend time with him in the scriptures. Have a rich devotional life. Sit under the preached word, word in a healthy church. Let the word of God wash over you. Familiarize yourself with the voice of God. Talk to him. Commune with him through prayer, through reflection, through seasons of solitude. Delight in him through worship and praise. Let God renew your heart and mind. Recharge your batteries. Refocus you. Be recipients of divine love. Drink deeply of God's love for you. And as you are being filled to the full with the love of God, then you have reserves to love those around you. I know I said this in our marriage series, but, but years ago when I was going through marriage counseling, our pastor said that love, the marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. He said marriage is a 100-100 proposition. I know you've probably heard this, but I, I go back to it all the time. Because I realize in Christian marriage, my, 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 the 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 primary love relationship in Christian marriage is not my wife. The primary love relationship in Christian marriage is my love relationship with Jesus. And it's having a healthy, intimate, filled to the overflow daily in my love relationship with Jesus. Because then when I look at my wife, I don't have to hedge my bets anymore. If I'm fully and perfectly and completely loved in Christ, it's not 50-50 anymore. I can love her with 100% of myself because my need to be loved is satisfied in Christ. It's a beautiful picture. So to engage in authentic relationships marked by love, it's a gospel-first endeavor. You cannot love by putting on love's attributes. Love flows from a transformed heart. It's, a, it's an outflow of being. Now I know that when I think about Southern Oregon in the West Coast and even Montana where I grew up, we are not known for our hospitality and charm out here. People tend to be a little bit more individualistic. We kind of like to keep to ourselves. Nothing wrong with that. But I got to tell you, as I look at our church over the two years that I've been here, it's encouraging in many ways. I've seen authentic relationships marked by love at Heritage Christian Fellowship. I've seen it in the way that we as a church celebrate what's good and what's best in people's lives. And I see it in the way that we show up in people's lives on their, their worst days as well. I saw it yesterday as Leslie, our our new children's ministries director asked for help to move. I saw a dozen brothers and sisters in Christ show up at a storage shelter and help this dear sister in Christ with joy move into her new home. It was awesome. I saw it a couple years ago when my friend, a pastor, a brother here at Heritage, hopped on a plane and flew to Portland to sit with a brother whose wife was dying. Sat there with him on his worst days. I've seen authentic relationships marked by love when a bunch of dudes hop on motorcycles and drive across the Pacific Northwest and go to Montana, spend time together. I, I see it when the over 50 fellowship hops in their cars and, and kayaks together and has fun together and spends time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I've, I've seen it on Wednesday mornings as men from every walk of life shows up at the hub at 8.30 to pray, to confess sin, to ask for prayer in their personal lives, to pray over the country. I've seen it. I've seen it in huddle groups. As, and I've seen it in men's and women's studies as groups take the initiative to both lovingly encourage one another, but I've also seen it when huddle groups take the initiative to actually speak rebuke into one another's life in love. I've seen entire families engage in the life of the church and engage with one another. I've seen God bring healing to families as they come and worship together and learn to love one another with authentic relationships. I, I've seen authentic relationships marked by love in our midst uh, through spouses who lovingly care for their loved ones. I've seen husbands care for their ailing and, and unwell wives, and I've seen wives care for their ailing and unwell husbands in very selfless and beautiful ways. I've seen authentic relationships marked by love lived out in our midst when, when empty nesters who've raised their kids don't just sit on their hands and they engage with the young families here who are a little bit overwhelmed and offer a, a place of respite and friendship and, and, and child care for families that are in the thick of child rearing. I've seen it through women who care enough to lovingly rebuke their sister, and I've seen it in men who care enough to lovingly rebuke their brother in order to bring them back from the edge. And church, 
Not too long ago, our church went through the year from Hades, didn't we? Not too long ago, you lost your senior leader in a very painful way. That was very hard for our church. Not too long ago, you lost one of your worship leaders at a tragic death. And in the aftermath of all that, we had to face the the difficulty of pandemic and the division that that's brought to our culture. And then as if that weren't enough, then the valley burns. That's all within less than a year. You endured that. I tell you what, I've talked to a lot of pastors after coming to this town. You did all that while looking for a senior leader, by the way. You could have bolted. You could have said, man, this is too hard. I'm going, to go to a st- I'm going to go to a church that has a building for heaven's sakes. You could do whatever you wanted to, but you didn't. I mean, you stuck it out. You lean into one another. I've talked to other pastors in town that are just, they, they marvel that we've, that, we've, that we've thrived through this season. They marvel at it. They can't believe it. It's this deep sense of community that has held our church together. This, these authentic relationships marked by love that has allowed our church to endure the difficult seasons of yesterday. We are to be people of God we are to receive his love and we're to don the posture of one's loved and then we're to love others as God has loved us. And so the last question we have to ask then is question number eight. How can we help each other grow? How can you and I help each other grow authentic relationships marked by love? How can we, how can we grow deeper in our relationships with one another? How can we go deeper in our ability to to have our relationships marked by love? And I think we just look initially to the example of Jesus. I was thinking about Jesus this week and what he's modeled for us in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus over and over and over again at abandonment of self-interest stepped into the pain of others. We see him do it all the time. Steps into unspeakable situations to, 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 to minister, to bring resurrection hope, to, to weep with, to, to be present with those who are suffering. We see Jesus sharing his own pain with those that are closest to him. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus falls on his hands and, and feet before, his hands and knees before the, the, Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends, and, and, he, and he begs them to pray for him. He says, he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. He vulnerably shared his, his inner world with these trusted saints. He begged them to pray for him. Jesus met people where they were, and he loved them where they were. I love that passage with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Where are your accusers? Well, they don't don't accuse you, and neither do I. Go and sin no more, he says. He meets her where she is, and he encourages her to live a righteous life. And Jesus, in self-sacrificing ways, gives himself to others. If if, if If we could live that, as God loves us, through the power of the gospel, as our need to be loved is, is fully satisfied in him, if our, if our, if our identity is, is established and, and it's, it's already defined and etched in stone and we don't have to go down any dead-end paths, we don't have to look for love in all the wrong places, if we can just be settled in his love for us, be complete in his love for us, be filled to the, to the full in his love for us, and then we can, we can look at the, the relationships around us, we can walk as Jesus walked, we can step into the pain of others. That's authentic relationship. Is walking into the storm when someone's life has fallen apart and saying, I'm here with you. And I, and I believe that vulnerability begets vulnerability. If, if we don't have any, if, if our identity is already settled and we already know we're his and we already know we're loved with an eternal love, what do I care what someone over here thinks? When it comes to confessing sin, we're so scared to confess sin because we're afraid of what it's going to say about us. We don't want to be embarrassed. But if, I, if who I am is already established... Then why not just be vulnerable and honest and confess sin to a brother or a sister in Christ? Vulnerability begets vulnerability. Let's just be honest with each other. Jesus, here's the son of of the living God on his hands and knees in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I am so depressed and so overwhelmed, I want to die. He says to his friends, what would it look like, church, if we stepped into each other's lives in those moments and and spoke and, and opened up our lives in utter vulnerability with one another? If we willingly stepped into each other's lives and, and cared for one another in our, in, our, in our life's circumstances, whatever they may be, if we, if we met with one another on the best days and, and met with one another on the worst days and just lived this authentic relationship marked by love, oh gosh, it would be awesome. I'm convinced this is what the world is, is looking for. I, I think it's a powerful apologetic. I think for people that have maybe given up on the church because they've been given wrong ideas of what the church is, if they could glimpse and see a community of people who live in such a way, I think this is what the, the world is yearning for. They're yearning for this love. And as we engage in a life of discipleship, as God grows us in the areas that we've been talking about and that we'll continue to talk about over the next few weeks, 
these, these, these markers of discipleship, these aren't silos. These aren't independent little things. Like, it's all, they're all interwoven with one another. Is we as a body of believers are, are learning to, to, to live in God-glorifying stewardship. Is our, is our, as we have gospel purity and mature doctrine. As we're living a missional lifestyle. As we have authentic worship marked by relationship. As we're growing in emotional health and in godly character. And, and if we have a willing submission to God, that community that has those attributes... As a byproduct of health, they'll engage in authentic relationships marked by love. The healthier we grow collectively as a church, the healthier our relationships will grow. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we don't do this, this, this life that we aren't called to live. Kind of just figuring it out on our own along the way. I mean, Jesus, in an incredible act of intentionality, you became flesh. You drew near to us. You sought out relationship with us. You, Jesus, you went to the cross in the greatest act of self-sacrifice, modeling for us love. And so, God, as we gather here today as recipients of this divine love, as men and women who've been loved with the love we can't even fully understand or fathom, God, I pray that, that as, we, as we worship you, as we fix our eyes on you, as we focus on you, as we, as we, as we lean into this love relationship we have with you, God, would you, would you just fill us? God, would you cast out any lies or any untrue things we, we think or believe? God, would you shore up our identity in you so that as we look to the, the men and women around us, as we look to the relationships around us, God, would you give us the ability to love as you love? to enter into authentic relationships that are, that are vulnerable and honest and transparent and real and God-glorifying and beautiful. God, would you grow depth in the body of Christ here, God? As we, as we grow together with you, God, would you allow us to grow together in our relationships with one another? God, allow our relationships to be marked with love. And ultimately, God, we want you to be glorified through that. I'm so grateful that we that we are recipients of your love. God, help us to love as you love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.